Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with a very special guest, uh, Jared Isaacman, who many of you know from the recent announcement for the Inspiration4 mission. He's also the CEO of Shift4 Payments, and we're going to talk about the future of space travel and what it means for civilians to start going into, uh, into space. Jared, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to spread the good word on Inspiration4. Absolutely. Well, I want to start first with, uh, with your love of aviation. From a very young age, it sounds like you've been a pilot. Uh, you've traveled around the world and set some world records. But what was the first moment in which you realized that you wanted to fly in the sky and pilot aircraft? Oh, I don't know. It could have been Top Gun. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, that inspired a lot of people to want to be pilots. Um, I'm, I'm not sure um, where it came from, but it was right around like when I was five years old or so. Um, I actually think I had more of the, uh, the space interest first. Um, I definitely remember in kindergarten, look, you know, taking home books on, um, you know, on the space shuttle and such. But that did quickly, you know, move towards aviation and aerospace. Flew a bunch of cool flight simulators on computers I built as a kid and just always wanted to fly. It just didn't come to me until a little bit later in life after I started my business when I needed a, a hobby away from work. <laughs> Absolutely. And you went pretty quickly from, I assume, training aircraft to, to jets. How did you make that transition? And how did you even get into the, the, the fighter jet flying community? Yeah, so um, that's right. I, I probably, uh, I mean, I have about 6,000 hours and I bet 150 are pistons. So I went uh, really quick. Actually, actually, I, I flew a Baron for probably 600 hours, but I, I did try and sprint as fast as I could um, towards uh, multi-engine and then jet aircraft. Uh, so started flying in 2004. I think I had my first jet type ratings in like 2006. And then um, uh, started uh, picking up kind of some of the ex-military aircraft that are more readily available, like L-39s and T-33s. And then from there, I got really lucky to get a, an A-4 Skyhawk type rating in, um, mm -hmm. in the Collings Foundation's A-4, which then led me to some Vietnam heritage flights uh, at Oshkosh, which then teed up some airshow flying, and that turned into a defense adversary business. So it, it kind of just progressed in these kind of big leaps along the way. But I uh, tried to have as much aviation exposure as I could the last, you know, 18 years or so or 17 years. And I know you were on an aerobatics team. Uh, I had the great fortune to fly with the Blue Angels in the backseat of number two and kind of be in their, one of their shows and watch them in their, their debrief and, uh, and, and briefing scenarios. What was it like flying in those close formations with other pilots? Well, you picked the right, uh, the right plane to fly in, number two, right wing. That's a yeah. pretty close one in my heart. That's the, that's the position I flew. Um, oh, fantastic. It, it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, what, um, you know, what a privilege to be able to fly with so many, like, really incredible aviators, like, you know, Snort Snodgrass. Um, like, you know, mm -hmm. he's a legendary Tomcat driver. Uh, he was our, our lead solo and, and then instructor to, to myself and, and Doug Demko, the other civilian who was on the jet team. So we got to fly with some amazing individuals and it, this was just very challenging stuff. That's what I attracted me to it. That's it, what attracted me to most of the kind of adventures I've gone on is, you know, doing things that are hard and, um, you know, flying that close to other aircraft, doing loops and rolls to music. It's, uh, it's not easy. And, um, and I think that was a big appeal for it was, you know, really testing your abilities under those conditions. Absolutely. And so you also made an around the world journey. I think you made it a couple of times to try to break the world record. Can you talk us through what inspired you to do that particular adventure, as you put it, and what it was like to, to actually accomplish that mission in, I think, 68 hours or something? 
it was like 61 hours and 50 minutes. 61. I haven't looked okay. in a while, but um, <laughs> it, it did beat the record uh, by about 24 hours. And um, what was interesting was just like in that, you know, time frame like 2008, you, you started to have much more of these like, you know, uh, glass cockpit aircraft that were getting uh, just tons of information fused into it from, you know, weather and notams. I mean, you didn't even have to flight plan on the ground, really. And that that became essentially the challenge was, wouldn't it be cool to take one of these airplanes that ha- that's all decked out in this great glass cockpit, fly it around the world without, you know, stopping, like literally just to get fuel and keep going um, and, and beat the record just, you know, to kind of prove out these advances in technology. Um, and that, that was going to be a fun adventure for us. And it really was, it was a great time, but you know, like a lot of these, um, you know, endeavors that I've tried to go on, you try and make it about something bigger than the mission itself. So, um, that around the world trip benefited a really, you know, great charitable organization as did every one of our airshow performances as well. Like, and, and, and certainly as will inspiration for with St. Jude's. Absolutely. And how did you select the, or how do you select the organizations that you want to, you know, align your adventures to the contributions with? Are they mostly medically focused or what's, what's kind of the passion there? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, my company ship for, uh, we've tried to support a lot of different charitable organizations. I mean, everybody has some organization that's kind of close to their heart. You know, for me uh, personally, I, I have tried to, you know, be extra supportive of organizations that are helping families uh, and children go through really, really difficult times. Um, that's how uh, it was with those around the world flights and the air shows and, and certainly how it is with Inspiration4 benefiting St. Jude. And, and the reason why is I just know how lucky I've been in life. I mean, the balls bounce my way many times. You don't really get to where I've, you know, found myself in life without some luck. And then I think about, you know, the complete other end of the spectrum where there's families right now with children who got dealt a really horrible hand in life. You know, they're going through horrible, heartbreaking circumstances with childhood cancer. And many of them won't grow up to even experience anything like I've been able to go through. And it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. We just have to do something about it. So for as much as I believe in like trying to make progress in the world, like we're trying to do in space, right? I also believe you have obligations to take care of some of the big problems that affect us today. Childhood cancer is at the top of my list right now. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into space, I definitely want to spend the most of our time there. Um, One of the other unique things about your background is you never graduated from high school. You have a GED and you started working very early on your entrepreneurial track. Um, take us back to when you were, you know, 16 or 17 and made that decision. What were you thinking about what you wanted to accomplish and how school may not have gotten you there? Yeah. So first I should say, like, I am like a big supporter of you know, <laughs> traditional education tracks. Uh, I did get a college degree later on. Like I, 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 I do think it sets people up for success in life. Uh, so I wouldn't encourage anyone to just drop out and, and try and do what I did. But I blame my brothers and sisters. So uh, I'm the youngest by a big stretch. Um, my elder brother is 15 years older than me. My sister is 13 years older than me. My other brother's 10 years older. So like when I was in middle school and high school, they were out like enjoying their lives, um, you, know, uh, you know, having careers and such. And I just wanted to kind of get that thing going a little bit. So um, had a company that did some computer work and I, I worked at CompUSA. It was a computer wholesaler and, and, and tried to well. um, basically... Yeah, I tried to poach, you know, customers from my own little business. And one of them happened to be, you know, a credit card company that was having some problems um, and was inquiring about e-commerce and such. And I was like, this is a good consulting opportunity. And um, so wound up uh, working for them for about six months. And I said, like, 
there's opportunity here to create something. Um, there's opportunity for improvement. And uh, so then I left them and I started um, what, what became Shift War Payments in, in my parents' basement. It's been a 21-year journey since. So talk to us about the entrepreneurial journey. What were some of the, the main lessons you learned? And even, you know, every entrepreneur has a moment where they, they hit a roadblock or a brick wall in front of them. They have to figure out a way around it. What was that moment for you? And how did you think about navigating that? Maybe there wasn't, but I'm curious to know if there were. Well, I mean, look, I, I think everything begins with opportunity, right? Like I, I, I certainly know um, a lot of people who have been very passionate, you know, loved what they were doing and wanted to create a business, you know, loved food, they're going to make a restaurant, loved cars, you know, wanted to build a, you know, create a, an auto modification company. So there's things because they were following their passion in life. Um, you know, passion, enthusiasm is all great for creating a business, but there has to be opportunity too. There has to be something wrong or something that can be done better, um, you know, in order to overcome the odds, which is, you know, most businesses fail in their first year, right? Um, I was pretty lucky that my exposure to the payments industry very early on revealed like a ton of inefficiencies and problems because in the early days of, of payments, everybody was focused on putting credit cards in consumers' wallets so they could go spend beyond their means and such. But the actual flip side of, uh, of enabling it, accepting those uh, credit cards as a form of payment was like way overlooked. Um, and it was just filled with inefficiencies and such. And that was opportunity. Um, and then, you know, the passion came later, like the opportunity came first, then the passion to improve and, and do things better, um, you know, is what, you know, kind of what's fueled uh, myself and the company for 21 years. In terms of like roadblocks and such, I, I look back constantly, like that's something that is a big part of my, my approach and how I grow as a leader is like, I look back on emails from 15 years ago, like 18 years ago, 10 years ago, I look at decisions I make all the time and then reflect on them today and see if my thought process has changed at all. And I use the outcome of those decisions from long ago to help shape my uh, decision-making today and into the future. And there's definitely like, I, I do know that what I consider my biggest mistake ever was, um, you know, from a business perspective was back in, in early 2005 and it was entirely re related to, um, you know, sustaining growth and capital. And, uh, I chose what was probably like the most costly form of capital I could have, could have at the time period. Uh, and that set us back, you know, so something that was supposed to supercharge growth, uh, by making a bad decision there probably set us back three or four years. Um, and, and we've been like super fortunate in our growth trajectory and it's a great business, but I do reflect back constantly that had I made a different call at that point, where would we be today? And it, it certainly would have been farther along in a bigger organization than we are. Um, so that's, that, that's a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, 21 years ago, you kind of saw the need for a new payment system and FinTech has been on the forefront of a lot of, you know, venture firms the last couple of years. Um, how has the payments area evolved in those 20 years? And like, is there still opportunity with all these, with all these firms kind of emerging? Yeah. So I think what, 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 at least what we've been trying to, you know, focus on for probably at least the last 15 years of our company history is just vertically integrating, you know, commerce enabling software with payments. Um, so they used to be two like, you know, completely parallel industries and a, and a business, you know, we happen to have gravitated a lot more towards restaurants and hotels and such, you know, would pick out their various software solutions and then separately build out their, their payment network and could even have a different provider for, 
analytics and encryption and merchant settlement, we've tried to, you know, remove a lot of that uh, uh, complexity and collapse everything down to like a single vendor type solution. Um, but you're seeing that everywhere, right? I mean, you know, Square, for example, taking, you know, their software plus payroll plus capital offerings, but and plus payments and bundling it all together. But then you see it in numerous other verticals. Um, you know, even the, the barber that I go to in New York City has this really unique fintech, um, you know, solution that's combining uh, payments plus, uh, you know, reservations online, mm-hmm. um, which is which is kind of interesting. But the, the examples are numerous, restaurant technology and such. So, um, and I think we're seeing this in, you know, a number of different interesting technology verticals where the way things were done, you know, five years ago have evolved many times, I think, through vertical integration to deliver a better experience for the customer. Yeah. Well, shift four is from the platform you've been able to leverage to, to use this to, to go into space. And uh, I'd love to explore the Inspiration4 mission. Um, so how, what was the inspiration behind Inspiration4? When did you think of this idea and how did you go about, you know, working with Elon Musk to develop this? So it all came together like incredibly fast. Like I'd, I'd love to tell you that this was like, you know, months of good idea machine cranking away and let's put all these pieces together and create Inspiration4. Um, it was like almost instantaneous because, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of the backstory, I've been knocking on the door for, geez, since like 2008, expressing my interest in commercial space exploration. Um, that's how I went to Bankanor in 2008 to see the Soyuz go up was with the same, you know, commercial space uh, community. And um, I was on an unrelated call to commercial space exploration uh, in early November, just prior to the Crew-1 launch. And uh, I made a point to close out the conversation by saying, you know, by the way, you know, just as a reminder, I'm always interested if uh, if you think you're ready, you know, to move in this direction away from just, you know, superpowers sending people to space. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was, well, we think we, we do have an opportunity and it could be like, you know, nine, 10 months from now. <laughs> It was like, wow. Uh, and, and it would be the first. And now that changed everything. Cause it's like, well, the first comes with a lot of significance first, you know, all civilian mission to space is like that big stepping stone towards where everybody is eventually be able to explore among the stars. So you have to be really thoughtful about this. You have to give thought to the organization that stands to benefit, because I do believe like we have as much of a responsibility to move society forward um, as we do to take care of, you know, some of the challenges we have here on earth. Uh, so there has to be an organization that needs to benefit from it. That to me was immediately St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And then second is the crew members. Like we can't have, you know, a bunch of, you know, rich white guys here. Like that's not the way we're doing this in 2021. Like we're going to deliver an inspiring message to the world. We're going to have crew members that eat every one of them in their own right can deliver a very powerful story and inspire, you know, some community out there as to what's possible. And certainly we hope collectively to deliver an inspiring message as well. So that like was all instant. Like we know we're going to do it this way. And then we've just been working backwards from deadlines. Like we know March 1st, we need to know the crew in order to make our training timeline in order to make our launch window. So, you know, if you're going to try and energize the country around, you know, this concept, this grand fundraising effort and crew selection process, what's a better time, you know, a better or a better stage to do it on than Super Bowl. So then you're working backwards from a Super Bowl commercial. So like we had to have this figured out in like a few days. And then since then, we've just been working towards these milestones. So you mentioned the, the civilian crew. Can you walk us through the four individuals or the archetypes of individuals who will be joining you uh, on this mission later this year, hopefully? Yes. So um, uh, 
we have uh, identified four mission pillars that each of the crew members will represent because there's only four people who fit on Inspiration4 in the Dragon <laughs> spacecraft. Um, and there will be uh, someone, you know, myself, who's going to represent the mission pillar of leadership. You're going to have uh, a, a crew member who will represent the mission pillar of hope. Uh, and she has already been selected. So she is a, um, she's actually got a great story. She's a childhood cancer survivor, was treated at St. Jude, grew up to become a healthcare professional. She works at St. Jude now helping other kids in the fight against cancer, just a great individual. And then there's two other crew member seats. And one is gonna represent the mission, um, uh, mission spirit of generosity. And, and that we invite everybody. Anyone can go to the inspiration4.com website, make a donation to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And at the end of the month, through a random selection process, we will pick one person uh, to occupy that crew member seat that represents generosity. And it doesn't matter if you're the first donation or the last donation, your chances are just as good. And then in the, the fourth and final crew member seat will represent the mission spirit of prosperity. And here, uh, just drawing upon my own past, trying to help elevate an entrepreneur and get their business up to the stars. And, and the way we intend to do that is leveraging the, the shift for shop e-commerce platform, which it doesn't cost anything to create an e-commerce business on it. And you can find out about it on the inspiration4.com website, but you create this e-commerce site and then you make a video and you share it on social media about how your business um, is going to make a difference. And then uh, through an independent judging process at the end of this month, we will identify our fourth and final crew member and that will be uh, inspiration for. That's incredible. So I'm curious, the Super Bowl commercial, how effective are Super Bowl commercials? Like this is, you know, before and after, were there, was there a, a shift in the number of folks who went on the website and, and registered and applied or how, how meaningful was that? Yeah, uh, it's incredibly meaningful. I mean, First of all, like um, there's no like, you know, P&L, you know, motive on any of this that like, you know, Cheetos has to measure up against or cheap, you know, they're going to spend X amount and they need to get a certain amount in return. It's like, no, like this is, these are all like, you know, contributions I'm making in order to get the good word out. So, you know, like in 90 minutes, we had, you know, $1.5 million of additional donations on top of what we already had wow. for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Um, you had like, I don't know the exact number. I don't want it, but like tens of thousands of individuals who made a donation to St. Jude that maybe otherwise wasn't familiar with their mission. So like, it's a win right from the start, um, you know, in terms of like our, our $200 million uh, fundraising goal of which, you know, we're like 60%, 55, 57% of the way there. And we've got a whole year to work towards. So I, I think everything we've been doing to try and get the good word out on the inspiration for mission to raise awareness for this, you know, killer fundraising opportunity and, you know, to identify crew members to represent the first all civilian mission to space has been going pretty well. So listeners of this podcast will remember we interviewed Vic Glover, who was a friend of mine and also the pilot of Crew One. And he went through a seven year process to become an astronaut and pilot Crew One back in November. You know, March 1st comes along, hopefully end of year launch. That's an eight or nine month window. What does the training look like for the crew members who are selected for this mission? Yeah, so I mean, the Dragon, uh, the Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon spacecraft are human rated by NASA. So um, everything comes from essentially from their approval, including the training curriculum. Uh, the difference with us, um, you know, versus a NASA astronaut is just going to be, um, you know, the additional modules that won't be applicable to our mission. So we're not going on a spacewalk. That, that extensive <laughs> training goes into that. We're not going to space station. 
Um, and there's extensive training that goes into that as well. Outside of that, in terms of you know, safely operating Dragon through normal abnormal procedures, you know, water survival, um, understanding the systems, academics behind, you know, the, the system, it's all identical. All the, the same sim sessions they have to pass, we have to pass. Um, but I, I do think given the, the more narrow training curriculum, because we're not doing some of the same things that a NASA astronaut will, we, we will have the time to complete it um, before our launch. And what does the mission profile look like at this point? So it's a multi-day mission to low Earth orbit, and um, excuse me. So, sorry, it's a multi-day mission to low Earth orbit. Um, we are still working through the mission design review. In fact, the next meeting is uh, a week from today back at SpaceX. So we'll try and nail down, uh, you know, um, orbital inclination, uh, altitude. Um, but you know, besides besides that, we do know we are taking payload up. We will have some experiments up there. Um, we're working with St. Jude and some other healthcare institutions on things that we can be just helpful with because it's a very long wait list to get anything into, uh, into orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we'll continue to release details on our mission website as we know more. And, you know, you're going to be the mission commander. You are a pilot. But what role will you play in actually piloting the aircraft, piloting the, the spacecraft? How autonomous will it be? How, how are you going to be able to, to execute your pilot skills in this environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't think it's that dissimilar to a lot of the flying that, you know, most pilots have done where, you know, 95% of the flight, you've got, you know, altitude hold heading on, you know, you've got some degree of automation that's built into, you know, into the system. Uh, it's when something goes wrong. Uh, so, you know, uh, Dragon does have full manual override on all controls. Um, you know, there are manual ways and, you know, in case you lose contact with ground control on how to, you know, deorbit. Um, and, uh, pretty much every, you know, major system to sustain life has some manual control element to it, which will be part of the simulator training and the systems training going into it. But, um, you know, if everything is working the way it's supposed to, there's probably very little, um, you know, of, uh, piloting dragging around in orbit. Can you talk about what this means for the future of space travel? And where I'm going here is, you know, I, th I think we're at the, the gateway to, uh, transformation, how our society and how humanity engages with the cosmos. You know, you have Jeff Bezos stepping down from Amazon to be executive chairman. My hypothesis is he's going to focus very heavily on Blue Origin. You obviously have Elon Musk, who has this plan to get to Mars within the next decade and is aggressively moving towards that. This mission, Inspiration 4, you know, the commercial aspect, putting civilians into space for the first time. Like, why is this an important mission to open up the cosmos for the rest of us? Well, it had, you have to take that kind of first step. And I think if we, you know, just draw on our, you know, aviation history and you look at Orville and Wilbur's, Wilbur Wright's first flight at Kitty Hawk, not the most impressive by any uh, <laughs> aviation standards, right? But 20 years later, you had the first, you know, airborne uh, ambulances, essentially, that were saving lives. Um, you know, you look at uh, Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic. One person got to experience that super expensive, you know, gets a, you know, ticker tape parade when he comes back to, you know, the United States, right? 12 years later, Pan Am establishes the first transatlantic commercial flights across the Atlantic, 12 years later. So mm -hmm. these things can come so fast behind it if we get the first one right. There is no doubt this is what Elon Musk wants. This is his vision. I share his vision. I, I, I completely agree with you that I believe Bezos is going to be focusing his attention on advancing Blue Origin's agenda. And the costs 
are expensive now, but they will come down like all sorts of new technology we've seen over time. And, and, I, and certainly Elon is paving the way with reusable rocket technology. I mean, what he's done is already a decade, you know, in front of everyone else. So I, I can't peg it if it's 50 years from now or 100 years sure. from now. A lot's happened in the last 100 years just in, in the United States. But there's going to be some period of time where there will be families and children in spacesuits bouncing around on the moon. There will be Martian colonies. This will be accessible to more than just NASA astronauts. Um, and, and this is the first step in that direction with Inspiration4. What are some other companies that you see kind of emerging in, in this space commercial arena? You know, Axiom is going to send a couple folks up here soon and you got Virgin Galactic. But who else is on your radar that will you know, help develop this ecosystem? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I truly believe that SpaceX is a category leader right now. And there, anyone who's in second place is very, very far behind. Um, orbital spaceflight is super hard compared to suborbital. Um, I totally think it's great that, um, you know, uh, Virgin and um, even, you know, um, New Shepard, which is a Blue Origin product, you know, it, is, is going to expose people to super high altitude flight and weightlessness. Um, but there's a big difference between, you know, a, a giant power, you know, power lock arc and, um, and going into orbital flight at 17,500 miles an hour, or, you know, building a spacecraft that can hold a hundred people and achieve escape velocity and put people on Mars. Like the, the, there is like SpaceX is truly way out in front and all that. And look, this is, I, I often wonder like how much farther along SpaceX would have been if it didn't have, you know, to battle like institutional inertia for so long. Um, you know, I, in a very small way, kind of know what, you know, SpaceX went through in those early years, just based on our experiences at Draken and trying to do something that was normally fulfilled by government agencies. But now that I think um, SpaceX has, you know, proven itself in a huge way and won over and I think really energized the world around space exploration, I think they're going to be able to achieve some pretty amazing things in the years ahead. Yeah. And can you talk about the role that the government will play going forward? You know, they had a monopoly on space up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago. You obviously have the primes like Lockheed and Boeing. Okay, buddy. <laughs> this is my son, Knox. Hey, Knox, real quick. This guy's going to go to space in about a year. Can you say hi? Hi. <laughs> okay. Hey, Knox. Um, that's awesome, buddy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, you know, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh, yeah. What, what role do you think the government's going to play going forward, given that, you know, the leaders in technology, even the talent war, like SpaceX, the workforce is so much younger and so much forward leading than, than the other ones. What role will the government play in, in, the, in the future of space travel, do you think? Well, first, I mean, you have to give so much credit um, to what NASA has done to even enable this right now. Like SpaceX didn't do it entirely on their own. NASA helped an awful lot. And yeah. We truly are standing on the shoulders of giants right now. I, I, I definitely believe that. But I do also believe that we've you know, gone past that first slippery slope um, with commercial space exploration. And I wouldn't be surprised if NASA's role, um, you know, 10 years from now is more uh, similar to how we see the FAA. If the FAA does not build airplanes, um, the FAA doesn't um, you know, train pilots. Uh, the FAA certifies people to build airplanes safely. The FAA certifies pilots to operate aircraft safely. I, I do think that's where we're gonna see NASA go. Um, because even if you look back a couple, um, you know, presidential administrations ago, uh, you know, the delineation was going to be commercial low Earth orbit. NASA is going to own deep space exploration. Look at Starship. Look at how far along they are compared to anyone else. SpaceX is already sprinting ahead with deep space exploration capabilities. 
you look at how much money has been allocated to SpaceX by the government and what they've been able to do compared to James Webb tel Telescope, which is way over budget, um, you know, way delayed. Like we've seen this play out time and time again. Like it's not just Elon, right? Like Bezos, a lot of these, you know, entrepreneurs um, who've been able to, you know, revolutionize things many way waves over, they are going to know the more uh, efficient way to get from point A to B. <laughs> including in deep space. So I, I do think there's going to be a role shift a little bit with NASA to be more of that oversight body, which is, which is going to be incredibly important considering what people hope to achieve in space. So it sounds like you have at least some insight into how Elon's thinking about the next couple of decades, but walk us through what it takes to get to Mars in terms of what developmental milestones have to be achieved, what, what SpaceX is planning to do to test those things out and get there, and then the final destination. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm not really privy to a lot of the uh, deep inside strategies around Starship. What I would say is um, they are going about it uh, in the hardest way possible for the, for the, in the best interest of humankind. So um, if you wanted to simply get one person to walk on Mars, you would not build Starship the way they're doing that. Um, everything is a big weight equation in putting anything into orbit. I mean, if you look at the size of the Saturn V rocket system, that skyscraper to put, you know, three people into lunar orbit, two people on the surface. So, I mean, you just look at that model of just all that propellant, all that rocket to get up to a tiny little capsule on top, right? It just, it just reinforces, um, you know, how challenging weight is to get it way away from Earth, right? Starship's going to hold like 100 people, <laughs> Right. Like he doesn't want to just have one person walk on Mars and plant the flag and say we did it. He wants to colonize it. That makes it way harder because that's a lot of weight to get there and to stay there. So he's got to think through multiple refueling stops along the way. He's got to think about how to um, mine fuel on, on the Martian surface, which he has. I mean, the, uh, the propellant for, um, for uh, Starship. Is, uh, is not the same RP-1 MOX combination that traditional most rockets use. So he's giving an awful lot of thought to it. But what I will say is like, he's thinking about the big picture of if we're gonna get there, we're gonna be there to stay. And that's so impressive <laughs> and it's so hard. Now, I think that's a great insight. And you look at, you know, we went to the moon in 1969, you know, haven't been back since the mid seventies. Um, and so, you know, the, the whole focus get two people on the moon and that was it. But if you're going to colonize, you have to have a, a far bigger infrastructure. But having done the hard work up front, it creates like a self-fulfilling prophecy where now you have the infrastructure in place. You have all the capital put into it already. You've solved the hard, hard problems such so you can keep going back and forth. And so I think, I think you're right in that regard. And that's just that's a brilliant way to, to kind of structure it. The hard way. No question. Yeah, exactly. So as you think about, you know, other competitors, you know, look at Japan and even China, they want to get to, to Mars first. You know, one of the things I've thought about is the, the race for the solar system. And again, this is maybe 50 or hundred years in the future, but it could be similar to the exploration of the 1500s and 1600s with, you know, nation states going out and trying to colonize certain aspects. What, what role do you see our foreign competitors in this role playing and how cooperative will it or will it not be? Well, um, I, I, for, I've actually said to SpaceX in a, in a video to their employees when we announced Inspiration4 that I, I do think they've given birth to the second age of exploration. Um, and I absolutely think the same time period as we're about to go into an awesome new chapter in you know human history. Um, but I think that one of the challenges with this is going to be costs. 
And um, it, these are very hard arguments uh, to prevail in when people highlight that there is real suffering here on earth. There are real problems here. It doesn't matter which superpower you pick. You know, life's not perfect here on earth. So, you know, to, you know, allocate substantial dollars to go out and bring, you know, rocks back from other worlds and plant flags and build infrastructure, it's, it's hard to justify that with the expenses you have here on earth. Um, that's why even with our own mission, St. Jude uh, Children's Research Hospital has to play such a big role. We have to raise far more for such an important cause here than what the mission will cost in itself. That's been very important to me. I think that will be a problem for all the countries that are out there. Um, you know, I, I know that the space industry here in the U.S. Is, is holding their breath on what changes could come to the Artemis program for bringing NASA astronauts back to the, to the moon. We, we, we all want to do this. I think it's in our, our nature as like, human beings. But, um, you know, we, we are going to be faced with this, you know, never ending balancing act. So, um, you know, I, again, it doesn't really matter, matter to me which superpower it's going to be. I think everyone's going to be faced with the same, you know, challenges. I, I do think if there was purely a race to who lands at Mars first, and if, um, you know, SpaceX is our best bet to do it, and um, they're focused on being there to stay with, with Starship, they, they probably have, you know, some challenges versus another country whose maybe focus is purely to get that one person to plant the flag and come back. It's two completely different sets of challenges. You know, uh, space VC seems to be coming on the horizon. Aside from manned space flight, what are the other things that are happening in the space realm that are slowly pushing us into the stars, whether it's, you know, microsatellites or other distribution? What, what are you seeing on the horizon? Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I don't want to sound like this perpetual uh, SpaceX fanboy. Uh, it's hard not to with what they're doing, but um, take a look at Starlink. Um, <laughs> You know, that has the capability to be so disruptive to, you know, global communication providers. Um, they have the opportunity to really give birth to Internet of Things um, because uh, they have this vertically integrated, you know, just kind of even coming back to the payment story. Look at how well SpaceX is vertically integrated virtually every aspect of their business from rocket design, refurbishment, and now even their satellite constellation they are going to be able to connect the farthest reaches parts of, of the world, the most isolated parts of the world and deliver them information at amazing speeds. Um, that's exciting. That's progress for humanity, by the way. I mean, I think that the world has had seen far less of the atrocities that we've known even in our recent history because of how uh, accessible information is and how easy it is to get the word out. So, uh, you know, that's just one element, I think, of what um, SpaceX will be able to deliver on top of it's got great commercial intent, which is important for funding that Mars mission and everything else to, to follow. So yeah, look, the, the uh, reusable rocket technology makes space more affordable and accessible, not just for humans, but for payload and cargo. Uh, Starlink is just one example of many. You know, it's interesting, uh, you were just talking about the trade-offs between, hey, we have challenges here on earth, the monetary resources have to go there, by spending it going to space. And I think one of the challenges with NASA in particular is it's beholden to a democratically elected Congress and it has to be, and there's gonna be those trade-offs. Um, but when it comes to you know, private and commercial space flight, they can go to where the market is. And if it's providing value for customers, they don't have to have a 50% majority. They can have 1% of people who are able to allocate those resources. And as long as it has a profit or some sort of return, they can do those things that maybe the government can't do otherwise. Um, do, do you see that as an opportunity for continuing to grow in the commercial space with that, that lack and need to rely upon you know, a democratic system? Or how should those resource allocation decisions be made when we do have challenges here on earth? Well, um... 
I think that one thing for sure right now, the ability to do so much, um, even without necessarily the immediate profit motive, um, is largely driven by you know this essentially 12 to 13 year zero interest rate environment that we've been working on. This has never existed before. And it, it buys an awful lot of patience for people when you're putting capital to work when it doesn't cost you an awful lot to do it. Um, so, you know, whether that's applicable to SpaceX or any of these other emerging, um, you know, space exploration industries or technology companies, if, if that changes, which is, you know, can, can certainly be influenced by a democratic process, that will stifle innovation in a huge way. Uh, so I think that's just something important to keep in mind. Um, a lot of great things exist right now because the cost of money is very is very low. Um, you know, in in terms of like commercial industry advancing an agenda that you know uh, a government organization couldn't necessarily do, that's great. Um, I, I can tell you just again, <laughs> firsthand being at um, you know SpaceX, seeing their approach. Um, you know, to making things happen and accepting risk and accepting failure in order to get to data faster, to make it better, quicker, to get it to market faster, right? Like I've seen plenty of the big defense primes. They don't work that way. They don't touch a keyboard unless somebody pays them to do it. Um, and they're very slow and um, like just a completely, you know, wrong, you know, thought process, I think. So look, I think it's great when an organization like SpaceX can do it on their own without anyone having to write them a big check along the way to figure it out, to make something commercial, to fund, you know, endeavors that benefit everybody, like, you know, their multi-planetary agenda. Um, anyway, hopefully well, helpful on that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, as, you, as you kind of syndicate this message and go around to different folks, do you see a passion for space amongst young people? And the reason I say it, you know, one of the things I've noticed is my sons don't look at the stars anymore. Like they're in the middle of a city when they look up, the sky is washed out. Now I'm a space nut. So like they certainly have that for me, but it seems like, you know, humanity is driven by numbers of people being passionate about an idea. As, you, as you're going around and talking about inspiration for, are you seeing the gleam in the eye of the, of the general public or is it still kind of isolated to a specific set of people who are, you know, the ones who have always aspired to go to space? Well, I, I think that different parts of the inspiration for mission resonate with, um, with different audiences. Um, I think, you know, that we're using this platform, you know, this historic mission in order to highlight a problem that's completely heartbreaking to, you know, virtually everybody, which is childhood cancer, that, that, that message is being delivered. It's being received and, um, and people are, are, are taking action because they're donating a lot of money that's really important and needed to St. Jude. I think there's a lot of people that I've interacted with who said, you know, until they saw a Falcon 9, you know, land on a boat, um, it didn't really do anything for them. Like it, and then when they saw that, they were like, wow, that is cool. And it's like, not only is that cool, like that's futuristic. Like how far away really are we? Like, is this possible in my lifetime? Am I going to see somebody walking on Mars on television sets or like, or streaming from my laptop? Could I actually be the one to do it? Um, that's happened. Uh, that's recent, right? Um, I think even, mm -hmm. you know, the space shuttle, um, you know, didn't necessarily um, inspire or captivate as many people as what we're seeing today with, with SpaceX. And I think the way they're doing it, it's because they have like a modern, fresh approach too. the fact that they're streaming these rockets and you're getting video of it going all the way up and then coming all the way back down and you feel like you're part of it. Right. Um, they're bringing that kind of Silicon Valley tech style and flair to, you know, to space. And, and I think it is energizing a lot of people. 
Yeah, well, to that point, I think one of the things that Elon's done better than anybody is he's showcasing failures too. Like he doesn't just show the after video of the successful landing. It's like every time the rocket blows up, the Twitter audience is watching. And as opposed to like pushing back against him, like, wow, this guy's actually innovating and being creative and the teams on the ground are failing, but they're, they're making their way forward. And I think that gives people hope because they realize their own, you know, aspirations are beset by challenges, but it's pushing through those to find the end result and having that mission. Um, So yeah, I I love what he's doing to kind of bring the process to the front of people's minds as they execute. He's teaching. I just hope, uh, you know, other industries are paying attention. The, I was at SpaceX, um, you know, just standing outside of Mission Control when, you know, SN9 had its, uh, you know, big uh, explosion event. People were cheering. Like, that's data, guys. We got it. You know, they want to they want to <laughs> fail fast and then, you know, pick yeah. up and move on again, um, you know, versus. Look, I, I mean, you take a look at even just, you know, aviation, you know, look at, you know, the F-22's first flight in like the 1988, you know, when IOC in 2005 or something, no one's trying to fail fast there. Everybody's trying to get everything, you know, right. down to the precise detail and it becomes dragged out and becomes costly and, and it's to our detriment, right? Versus, you know, Elon and SpaceX's approach is we're going to move quickly. We're going to do it faster and better than anyone else. And in the end result is we're going to have a really proven product the decade before anyone could have imagined. And, you know, it's, it works, right? So. Yeah. Well, Jared, as we come to the end of our time, this has been an awesome conversation. I know you're passionate about St. Jude's. Can you talk more about the work that they do and why they're so important and critical to this mission? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I certainly had a great appreciation for what they were doing uh, for, I guess, nearly 20 years that we've had a corporate relationship uh, with them. But uh, I mean, nothing more powerful than in the last two weeks since we've announced Inspiration4, because I've received you know, a hundred emails, letters uh, from families that were impacted by St. Jude that, you know, were dealt that really horrible hand in life that I mentioned before, but, but beat it um, and have gone on to enjoy, you know, incredible lives, you know, and they're so thankful for the work that St. Jude has done and they make it available to everyone too. I mean, it's not, you know, there is no commercial intent there. They don't charge anyone anything. If you wind up getting treated at St. Jude, you never get a bill. But whatever they learn from their research, they share with everybody. Um, they want to. They want to conquer this. They know that, like you know, life has to be, like we have to be better than than how it started. You know, like we've got to make progress on on things like childhood cancer and such. So, incredible organization. Not just from my direct experiences supporting them over the last you know, twenty years, but again, you know, the real world accounts of the work they've done, the lives that they've saved, the differences that they've made that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. It's um, many of them do absolutely bring me to tears. It's um, it's pretty incredible. Wow. Well, where can folks go to find more about the Inspiration4 mission and even uh, sign up to potentially be? Yeah, that's right. And that is the coolest part of this, right, is that you have everyday people who may (laughs) never have thought they could be an astronaut that are going to get fitted for a spacesuit in just a couple of weeks. And and it's never too late to get involved. So you go to the Inspiration4.com mission website. It says it right there, like, how do, how do I go to space? And you got two choices and you can actually do both. You can just make a donation to an incredible cause. And, you know, there'll be a random drawing at the end of the month. And whether you're picked as an astronaut or not, you made a difference. You're, you're helping save lives for St. Jude. That's an important thing. Or, uh, or create that, uh, that e-commerce website on the shift for shop platform and tell the world how you're going to, how you're going to make the world a better place with your business. And, uh, and you have an opportunity to be selected to join inspiration for as well at the end of the month. Wow. 
Well, Jared Eisenman, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We look forward to seeing you with three other crew members in space in the near future, and we'll be following your thank journey. You. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. Thanks, Cheers. Take care.